0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Today we're picking up in Ephesians chapter 4. Before we actually read the passage, um, I want to share uh, a story to kind of get us thinking about the transition that Paul makes in Ephesians 4. So, uh, my wife and I have three little kids two little angels and Aiden. Um, our youngest child is Josiah. He's about to turn 11 months old, so he's pretty young. And, um, most of our kids were not fast to get to crawling. I don't know; they just—they're like lazy, I guess. Uh, they didn't get quickly to crawling. They're all slightly behind, and Josiah is just like his big brother and big sister. He's uh, almost 11. He's not crawling yet. So we do the normal checkups. You know, we take him to the doctor, and they said, "Well, he—he's a little bow-legged, like he grew up riding a horse or something." And so. Uh, You know, actually, the cause of the bow-leggedness is every time his dad sits him on his belly, his legs just kind of go out like this. So uh, he was raised on his dad's belly. So uh, he had to go see a physical therapist. And so this is what the physical therapists will do. Um, I haven't been to any of these meetings, actually, but I know about the physical therapists and what they do. Physical therapist looks at his legs and his knees, and, you know, they know that... That his knees are supposed to look a certain way but they're slightly out of joint or slightly out of formation so well here's some exercises and stretches that he should be doing uh, to get him so we have him doing um uh, pilates and stuff just kidding that's a joke see if you're paying attention uh he ha- you know kendra has little exercises that he has to do to strengthen his legs and to get everything so that it's growing in the in the right direction in the right shape um, he's trying to pull himself up. He's got to go back and forth a couple times with the physical therapist, make sure that he's progressing in the right direction. But the physical therapist knows what is appropriate or what is correct for an 11-month-old 11 11 little baby boy. And because the physical therapist knows what is normal, the physical therapist is also able to identify what is not normal or abnormal. And then the physical therapist can give some instruction about how to bring what is abnormal into a state of normalcy. Does that make sense? So after a few weeks, I mean, we haven't gotten to this point yet, but hypothetically, after a few weeks of adjustments and exercises and stretches, we should be able to get to the point where we say, okay, Josiah, now walk like we're going to help you up on your feet or get to the crawling of course first and then we're going to get you up on your feet and get you walking because isn't the purpose of all of this the visits to the physical therapist the visits to the doctor the stretches the exercises isn't the purpose of all of that to get him to walk right so the first three chapters of ephesians are paul saying here's what a normal christian life should look like you're out of alignment in some areas so we're going to I'll put you back into alignment when we get to chapter 4 this is Paul saying okay now walk he, the first 3 chapters is this is what a christian is this is what a christian does this is your identity this is what's true about you the second 3 chapters is now walk in fact you're going to find As we read through the second half of Ephesians, that he uses the word walk a lot. He talks about, today we're going to look at walking in unity. He's going to talk about walking in the love of God. So the first three chapters are all kind of, well, let's look at what's normal. Let's look at how things should be. And then the second half of Ephesians is just, now let's apply this. Let's get up off of our uh, gluteus maximus and get walking after Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, so today we're going to begin looking at the walking. And one of the first things that he calls them to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, Which the result being walking in unity. Today we're going to talk about unity, church unity. And we're going to, I I hope, if we do this right, bring some correction and some balance to what church unity is actually looks like in the mind of paul and ultimately in the mind of jesus so it's a short passage it's ephesians 4 1 through 6 today not very long Um, the first part i want to just call this five steps for walking in church unity that's very corny i know but it works it's five steps for walking in church unity and the second part is going to be kind of it's seven things that we as christians have in common or seven things that christians share this could be a 12-point sermon it's supposed to be a two-point sermon with 12 sub points but we'll see how it comes across so let me read this really quickly this is ephesians 4 1 through 6 therefore i paul the prisoner of the lord remember paul's writing this letter from a prison why is he in prison was he because he Brought someone who wasn't Jewish into the temple. He tried to integrate the temple, so they put him in prison. Prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So this portion right here has five characteristics which are humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. These five character, characteristics result in unity. Okay? And we're going to look at that in a moment. But let's continue in the passage. Paul says to the Ephesians, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay. This is the portion of the passage That is going to bring the call to unity Into its proper place Because sometimes the call for unity Is too broad Okay, we'll get to that uh, In a little bit But uh, this is the beginning This is when Paul tells them actually How they preserve unity If you look at the uh, verse 3 It says being diligent to preserve The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace So The job of the Christian is not to create unity. That's the job of God. The job of the Christian is to preserve unity. We already have unity. Everyone that is genuinely, truly saved already has unity unless they disrupt it or unless they do not preserve it. Our job is to preserve the unity that we receive through the new birth in Jesus. Okay, So how do we preserve unity? Well, uh, there's... Five things in particular that Paul points out uh, for how we preserve unity. The first is that we preserve unity in humility. Uh, Humility is demonstrated essentially by Jesus. If you think about Jesus' incarnation, Jesus was in heaven on a throne being worshipped by angels, and he decided to, for a time, Leave that place where he was being worshipped and take on the form of a little infant. I mean, think about the humility that's necessary for him to do that. Take on a human form. He had to rely on human beings. He created Mary and Joseph and others. He had to rely on them, even though with the snap of a finger, he could have had anything that he wanted, right? But he relied on human beings. He submitted himself to human beings. He had his cousin John the Baptist baptize him. Even John the Baptist knew, Jesus, you ought to be baptizing me. But Jesus in his humility said, This is necessary, this is a necessary step to fulfill righteousness. So Jesus, you know, lived and walked among human beings before he was ultimately uh, murdered, crucified, despite being innocent. He was resurrected and ascended. That is an act of uh, humility. Philippians 2 kind of lays that out, how Jesus could have at any point played the God card and had whatever he wanted, but he chose instead to experience life and take on a human form and to experience life as a human being, and that was humble of him. Humility for us is not this self-deprecating false humility where we go around, I'm a worm, I'm no good, that's not humility, okay? I, you know, that's false humility, maybe. When you say something about yourself that God has not said about you, that's not humility. If God says, you're my child, and you say, I'm a worm, you're now disagreeing with God, Right? Humility is having a proper or godly understanding of yourself. It's thinking of yourself the way God thinks of you. Now, it is not um, self-centeredness, which I i mean, this is like pervasive in our culture right now. Uh, we probably potentially live in the most self-centered time and culture that has ever existed. I mean, I don't know, because I'll ask Chico, because he's been around for a couple generations. But I cannot think of a... Of a possible time period that was most more self-oriented and arrogant and self-centered than the time we currently live in humility is not self-centeredness but it is self-awareness self-awareness is like that's the only self phrase that i like um because self-awareness is understanding what it's like for other people to talk to you what it's like for you to be experienced by another person does that make sense? Like, all right, I'm going to keep picking on Sue. All right, what's it like for people? Sue needs to know what it's like for us to be around Sue. Okay, just I'm just kidding. It's a pleasure. It's a delight. <laughs> you know, I need to know what what is it like for someone that has to deal with me. You know, like how does it, it must be a pleasurable because my wife gets more beautiful every year that she's around me. So I must be this life giving. You know. The spirit or something, but of course I'm joking. But what is it like for people to interact with you? What is it like for people to experience you? Self-awareness, like understanding what it's like for people to interact with you. And then also, this is a, it's a helpful quote for what it is. This is actually from a pastor named Rick Warren, although people attribute it to C.S. Lewis, but what C.S. Lewis said was actually far more cutting than what Rick Warren said, but this is the definition of humility that he uses, which is a paraphrase of a definition that C.S. Lewis uses. It's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. So oftentimes we think that humility is thinking less of ourselves, calling ourselves a worm, calling ourselves a dirtbag. That's not humility. Humility is just not even thinking about yourself at all. It's just, uh, I'm not caught up on how good or bad I am. I don't think about myself much. That is humility. I live for the sake of others. I consider others better than myself. I put their needs and their wants before mine. I am not living for myself, but I'm living for the sake of others. Paul also tells them to walk in gentleness or that gentleness helps preserve uh, unity. Uh, Gentleness is the opposite of being aggressive, okay? This is maybe the hardest thing for anyone from Philadelphia to do, is to be gentle, because it's just in the water. Did you know, we we grow up drinking Delaware River water. Did you know the word Delaware means belligerent? You're all growing up with belligerence in your bones, you know? Like, it's it's in there, man. Um, that's true, by the way. I don't know what Schuylkill means, but... Uh, Gentleness is kind of a meekness and a mildness. Jesus is the example of meekness. Meekness is power under control. Uh, a meek person does not steamroll other people. A gentle person does not steamroll other people. Gentle pers- people have other people in uh, mind. They are not aggressive. They don't get up in your face. They don't intimidate. They don't manipulate. Okay, Gentleness actually helps us preserve Unity when we interact with other people. So unity in the church is preserved through humility. Hum- Let me try this sentence over. Unity in the church is preserved through humility. Unity in the church is preserved through, through gentleness. It is also preserved through patience. Uh, when I think of patience, I think of people who are steady. The word patience actually means long suffering. We think of patience as like long waiting, and once there's suffering, we're not patient anymore. But until there's been at least a small amount of suffering, you're not patient. Being patient when everything's fine is not patience. I don't know what that is. Chilling, I guess. But when, when there actually is some suffering, that's when patience kicks in it's long-suffering, it's steadiness. You probably all have a person or in your family or in your life who's kind of like this steady rock. That's actually a biblical idea of patience, a person who is not swayed, a person who is not easily moved. I don't mean stubborn, but I mean a person who can wait for things to take shape and can wait for things to come to pass. Uh, we can preserve unity by showing tolerance. That word tolerance is very inspirational. It means to put up with. Okay, that's, okay. let me try this one again. This, this is a joke coming, okay? Here you go. The word tolerance is very inspirational. It means to put up with. Oh my gosh. Oh, pray for the annual meeting. It means to put up with, okay? Listen, I think Paul understood We're not all going to get along at every level. There are going to be personalities. There are going to be preferences. There are going to be differences of opinion. And you're going to have to put up with some of that. Now, this has happened recently in the last 20 years that we have taken tolerance and applied it to sin. I think Paul's intention is that we would tolerate personalities. We would tolerate differences but not that we would tolerate sin. Does that make sense? When we want to apply tolerance to the individuals that we come across in the church. And mind you, he's speaking to the church. He's talking about tolerating brothers and sisters in Christ who have differences in personality and differences in their wiring. He is not talking about tolerating every sin in the culture. In fact, in the book of Revelation, in the early letters to the churches, there is this, whether it's a literal woman named Jezebel or a spirit of Jezebel or a metaphor after the Old Testament Jezebel, there's this Jezebel figure in one of the churches and uh, Jesus through John actually says, I have this against you that you tolerate Jezebel. So clearly, the tolerance we're talking about here is not the tolerating of sin, but it may be the tolerating of that person who's like really loud all the time. Or it may be the tolerating of that person that who will never talk to you, or it may be the tolerating of that person who votes differently than you vote, or it may be the tolerating of that person who sings off key. Or, you know what? You understand what I'm saying? If you can't tolerate that, have you truly grasped the gospel? Which then leads to the this final uh, characteristic that preserves unity is love. Love is the undergirding, overarching principle that ties all of these things together. If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, no one will ever have to remind you to preserve unity. I mean, you can never go wrong with actual biblical love. Uh, so Paul calls them to walk in love. Some of you might have been Christians for long enough, that, and, and maybe you experience this in your churches. I remember at least hearing about it. In the 1990s, does anyone remember the 1990s? In the 1990s, at least where I lived, and I think it was nationwide, there was a big hullabaloo in the church in the United States about whether we should be singing hymns or choruses. Does anyone remember this? Okay. This was a major area of contention for some churches. And entire churches would split We want hymns. We want choruses. And they decided that that was, for some reason, irreconcilable. And it was embarrassing and shameful that churches would split over the genre of music that they were singing. I think that whole period of time was exposing sin and like, the absence of all of these things in the church. Uh, I'm going to say this now and I will explain it later. There are reasons to separate, but style of music is not one of them. Bible translations that we're using is not one of them unless it's some sort of crazy, aberrant, you know, like uh, inaccurate version. Times of services, clothing, these are not reasons that Christians should be separating. I mean, shouldn't love... Be strong enough? Shouldn't tolerance be present? Shouldn't all of these things be present in such a way that these like minor issues aren't so easily fracturing communities of faith? Does that make sense? I mean, if you're loving your brothers and sisters in Jesus, I really think you'll be willing to put up with a few things. You know, even if they get on your nerves sometimes, I mean, that's fine because you get on their nerves. So, you know, we'll, we'll call it even. But I just, if all of these things are present, I would think a church would be almost impossible to split. Right? I would think it would be almost impossible for two Christians to not eventually reconcile over something. I mean, am I crazy? When I see this, I'm like, well, this is the solution to every church beef, church conflict, interpersonal drama that any Christians would have. I mean, any any long-standing conflict or drama that churches or Christians would have has to be exposing that some of this is missing. So how do we preserve unity? Well, here's five things that Paul gives us for how we preserve unity in a church. Now, some have taken this and made unity the number one most important priority in the church, and they've even put unity above truth. Meaning, it's important that we be unified even with heretics. Or it's important that we be unified even with false teachers. That is too far. And Paul actually brings some balance and some correction with the next passage. When he actually he says, uh, Andrew, can you give me the next? Oh, never mind, I think I got it. No, you've got to give me the next one. Schuylkill means hidden river. Thank you for the update. Okay, give me, no, give me the one that has the seven things that we share. That's it. What do we share as Christians? So listen, you can take unity too far when you put it not in its proper place. When you say that unity is more important than truth, well, you can have unity with false teachers and false prophets and, and heretics and false ideas about God. Paul actually checks them and says, here's what we should have unity on. Here is what we as genuine Christians, genuine followers of Jesus, here is what we share. One body, referring to the church, one hope, one faith, one God and Father, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. So this is what we share as Christians. First, one body. This is referring to the church. Paul always prefaces every explanation of spiritual gifts that he gives with a reminder that the church is the body of christ it's in 1 corinthians romans ephesians paul never talks about spiritual gifts which we will get into next week without first reminding the recipients of the letter that the church is the body of jesus uh, there is only one true church there is only one universal church now Some people will say, there's only one true church, and it's ours. That's insane. That any local church or that any denomination would claim that they are the true church is actually an indication that they are not the true church, okay? So if a person stands up and says, Baptists, that's it. That's the truth. Run, you know? If any person ever stands up and says, Methodist. That's the truth. Run. If anyone ever stands up and says our church or the Christian Missionary Alliance is the church, run. Okay? We are part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you this really quickly. Um, Hopefully you can see this from where you're seated. This is a theological concept that there is... I know that it says one church, and here I have a slide that has two churches on it, right? I get that that could be confusing. The universal church is every genuine follower of Jesus ever. 500 years ago, 100 years ago, today, 100 years from now, every true Christian that there has ever been dead or alive... Is the universal church okay? John Calvin, Martin Luther, A.B. Simpson, Polycarp, uh, you know, any Augustine, real saved people are part of the universal church. The visible church is everybody that's in part of a church now, okay? So you guys are all in church, I can see you all, you're part of the visible church. The visible church and the invisible church do not overlap totally because there are people who are in church today all over America, all over the world who are not saved. So they are not part of the universal church. They go to church, they participate in church, they might even serve and lead in church, but if they don't truly know Jesus, they are not part of the true universal church. Church attendance does not guarantee Uh, belonging in the universal church church membership doesn't even guarantee that only faith in jesus guarantees that you are in the universal church just showing up on sunday makes you part of a visible church does that make sense so where they overlap is and i don't know if you can read this genuine christians alive on earth now so i'll pick on susan Susan is a genuine Christian. I'm convinced of it. As much as I can know that a person is saved, Susan is saved, all right? Sammy knows what I'm talking about. I mean, she's extra saved, right? I mean, like trying to, okay. Susan is a genuine Christian alive on earth right now, so she is part of the visible church, and she's part of the universal church. So she, this is a Venn diagram, she's in that overlapping area but not everyone that is part of a church that you see is necessarily part of the universal church and there are people that are part of the universal church who are dead and gone that you don't see but they will be in heaven does this make sense so when paul says there's only one church he's talking about this there is only one intergenerational family of jesus that is the church And it's important that you be part of that through faith in Jesus. Not church membership, not church attendance, but an actual vibrant faith in Jesus, trusting him for your salvation. Now, what else uh, do we agree on? That there's one hope. When Paul talks about hope, he's referring to the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. That is our hope. We look forward to that, that Jesus is going to return, that he is going to rule Uh, for a thousand years, that the church is going to rule with him, that he's going to defeat Satan. You think of that, and you think, that's hopeful. That one hope is constantly contended against by other hopes. People put their hope in other things. People put their hope in their job, that, that if I make enough money, I will be set. People put their hope in the government, and become so entangled in politics and governmental affairs and reliant on the government that it's actually a place of hope for them. Which is why some, when some people get their preferred political candidate into office, it's like sunny and blue skies every day. And when people do not get their preferred political candidate into office, it's like the end of the world. If, those are, if either one of those are your reactions, you're putting your hope in the wrong place that makes sense okay i've lived through five or six presidents in my life pretty much coasted through all of them not one of them ever bought me a sandwich or anything so okay i really want to talk more about that but i'm not going to i need to keep my job all right there is one uh spirit which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only spirit that God gives to his believers, and the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. In Romans 8, it says if the Holy Spirit is not in you, then you don't belong to Jesus. God does not distribute different spirits to people. Okay, There's only one spirit, which actually confronts some false religions that have other spirits or multiple spirits that are active. There's only one spirit. Uh, So the same spirit that indwells me indwells, I don't know, Susan. The same spirit that indwells me indwells Kara or Debbie. There's only one Holy Spirit, and he is given to indwell every Christian. So that means that the same Holy Spirit that is in your favorite preacher on TV is also in you. The same Holy Spirit that was in Paul and Peter And James and John and Moses and David is in you. In fact, to just push this, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in you. That might sound like, oh, oh, be careful now. But there is only one Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus empowers you. If that seems over the top, then maybe you're not taking your Christian life seriously enough. Maybe you need to understand that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus' obedience can empower your obedience if the same submission that Jesus had is present in your life. Does that make sense? So there's only one Spirit, there's only one hope, there is only one Lord, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. When the New Testament uses the word Lord, it's referring to Jesus. Uh, For early Christians to say Jesus is Lord was was both a religious and a political statement i mentioned earlier a man named polycarp who was a bishop in the second century so this would be in the 100s okay so you know just about 100 years after jesus's death and resurrection there's a bishop named polycarp and uh polycarp was brought before caesar and he was supposed to kneel before caesar and say these words caesar is lord and he would not because he knew that to say that someone is lord was to ascribe deity to them and so polycarp was not willing to do that and polycarp was eventually killed because he would only say that jesus is lord so when you say jesus is lord you are saying no one else is lord only jesus is lord there is only one lord there are not multiple lords there's one baptism uh Now, this might already sound confusing. Wait, there's one baptism? Then how come there's so many different types of baptism? I mean, how come like some churches sprinkle and some churches dunk and some churches baptize babies and some churches don't baptize babies? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I could answer that. I mean, I know the thought behind it, but I don't think I can talk about it without um, accidentally upsetting people. But there there is truly only one baptism. Uh, and it's the baptism that follows faith in Jesus in water. In baptism, you are actually you're, we've said that we say this all the time we talk about baptism. You're identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you're also being baptized into the church. And there is only one baptism. There is not a Catholic baptism and then a separate Protestant baptism. There is not a Methodist baptism and a Lutheran baptism. Now, we actually screw this up sometimes uh, in churches. I hope our church doesn't screw this up. I don't think we do. But there are churches that actually say you must be baptized in our church to be a member. And you say, well, I've already been baptized. I've been following Jesus for 20 years. I got baptized when I was a new Christian. Well, you have to be baptized here. That violates this one baptism principle, I think, to require local church baptism and to not recognize universal church baptism, I think is screwing this up. So for every individual local church to say you must be baptized in our building, by our people, our way, I think is a violation of the one baptism principle. Does that make sense? All right. Now, I'll just tell you the truth. I've been baptized twice I was baptized as a little kid, sprinkled, and then. Uh, but I was not following Jesus. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't believe what I what I said. I was what I was repeating after them. It was just like mom and dad are making this happen, and uh, dad's bigger than me, so we're going to do this. Later, I truly put my faith in Jesus and was baptized of my own volition. So. Right, that was to me. That was the baptism into the Church of Jesus Christ. the The previous one was just doing what Mom and Dad told me. Okay, so there are times where, where a person may be rebaptized because baptism is sometimes forced upon people. Um, but understand that there's only one necessary baptism. It's the baptism of uh, faith that's a proclamation of faith in Jesus that identifies with his death and resurrection and connects us with the universal church, okay? Uh, One baptism, one God and Father. There's only one God, all right? Uh, This allows for Christian, Christian unity but creates distinction with other religions, all right? This is where Paul puts his foot down and says, listen, we're gonna be united but we're not gonna go crazy with this. People start talking about another God We're not in unity with that. People start giving God a different identity. People start talking about a different deity. People start doing that. Listen, that's not unity now. That's compromise. Does that make sense? Um, When we come across churches, and there are churches here in Philly, there are churches all over the world that really, they seem like they're Christian churches, but then you start to get into what they believe about God, which is the core of all theology, by the way like what we believe about God. Theology literally means study of God. You start finding out that what they believe about God is not what Scripture teaches. And we find out, oh, so we believe that there's only one God, but now we're talking about different gods. That's an issue. So at that point, we're not talking about unity. At that point, we're saying, listen, you've come, you've fallen into error. Here's what Scripture says. You need to be corrected about this. Does that make sense? Um... Here's where unity goes too far. Uh, Well, let me give you an example of how it should be, and I'll give you an example of how it shouldn't be. Here's how it should be. There's a great church on Comley Street called Crossroads uh, Community Church. There's a church on Van Kirk called Whistenoming Bible Fellowship. There's a church on Benner called Gray City Church of Whistenoming. They're all different denominations, but we get along very well with all of those churches Uh, our pastors get together, and we um, have breakfast and make fun of our church members. (laughs) Well, John Eric does. And I say, John Eric, inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, there is even though it's four different congregations, there's incredible unity among those four churches in our neighborhood. And we're hoping to invite other churches into that. It's taking time. But listen, here's where this goes too far when you start saying, uh, our church is going to pursue, pursue unity with the mosque. Or our church wants to have unity with the Buddhist temple or the Gurdwara or, or like some other... See, because now we're not talking about one God, we're talking about different gods. Okay? And I, this is something that's going to come up repeatedly. Christianity and Islam... And Buddhism and Hinduism do not have the same God, okay? Particularly, this comes up all the time, people think Islam and Christianity, oh, they believe in the same God, they just call them by different names. That is not true. We have totally different gods. Oftentimes, people will say, oh, you guys have basically the same religion with a few differences. And I'm like, no, we have a totally different religion with a few similarities, it's, it's totally different. Listen, Allah does not have a son who died on a cross. That's already a difference, right? Allah did not inspire the Bible. That's already a difference. So you don't have to think very far to come to this conclusion that we do not worship the same God and we do not unite under the same God. Um, frankly, and I hope I don't, I'm not meaning to hurt anyone's feelings here, Any Muslim or Christian that thinks that Muslims and Christians worship the same God is an uninformed Muslim or an uninformed Christian. We do not worship the same God. If I, let's say Elwood and I are talking, I say, Elwood, do you know Rob? And he's like, yeah, Rob? Rob from Philly? And I say, yeah, Rob from Philly. You know Rob? Oh yeah, I know Rob. Yeah, you ever met Rob's son? Oh, Rob doesn't have any kids. I'm like, yeah. Rob has a son, he's a carpenter. And you're like, no, man, Rob has no kids. I'm like, you know, like Rob, Rob Thompson. He's like, oh, no, I'm talking about Rob Johnson. (laughs) Oh, so we're talking about two people that have some similarities but are totally different? Yep. That's Yahweh and Allah. There's some similarities, but they're not the same person. Just because they're referred to by the same name sometimes does not make them the same person. Does that make sense? Okay, I've been rehearsing a conversation in my head like that for weeks, and I don't know if it went the way I wanted, but I think you get the idea. There's a lot of conversations in my head throughout the week. Finally, what do Christians share? One faith. When Paul says that we share one faith, he's talking about we have one essential belief system or system of belief about God, one core set of doctrines. Okay, We have uh, that. And the church at this point, with, when Paul was writing this, was establishing what is core to their one faith. And it all centered around Jesus. I mean, it was about the existence of Jesus and the nature of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. I mean, the core of the one faith that he's talking about was Jesus. And everything kind of came out, of what they believed about Jesus. So there are creeds uh, in the New Testament, creedal statements in the New Testament. In fact, this is one of them, Ephesians 4, 4-6. through 6. This is one of the early statements that the Christian church would have probably memorized and used in their gatherings that there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is calling the church to unity with the church or unity in Christ. He's saying as Christians, we should have unity in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is not unity. Understand that? We're not trying to have unity with everybody who believes in other gods. We're, not, we're also not trying to have a holy war either. But understand that we believe different things about God than they believe. We still love them. We still spend time with them. We do not disrespect them. We share the gospel with them, but we are not united about our beliefs in God. Okay? So in Christ, we have unity. Outside of Christ, we have a mission field. He's he's bringing things into balance here. Now, this one faith that he calls them to was being developed in the first century. Paul Paul and John and Peter and other epistle writers were uh narrowing down and focusing on what are the essentials of the faith and i uh i found that the, some of the early church creeds have actually been really helpful to get a picture of what is the narrowed down essential parts of the christian faith so some of you may be familiar with something called the apostles creed okay he was also the guy that was friends with rocky um Okay, that was Apollo Creed. All right. Um, the Apostles' Creed was written around 140, BC, uh, sorry, AD, 140 AD, so roughly 100 years after Jesus' ascension, death and resurrection and ascension. This is an early church statement about what was core and essential to the Christian faith. Now, there are more creeds. There's the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, and there are other creeds. The the Apostles' Creed has generally been agreed upon to be a very accurate description of what early Christians believe. There's also something called the Didache, which is way longer than this, that's a really accurate summary. It's not in the Bible. It's a summary of the Bible, okay? But this is the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to read it, and then if you feel like you are in agreement with this, we're going to read it together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, he, uh, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church. So let me hit pause right there. Catholic in this context means universal church, not Roman Catholic Church, okay? Understand? The word Catholic means universal. But sometimes Protestants, and I'm Protestant, this is a Protestant church, we get tripped up on that word, like we're going to send the Pope a check or something like that. Catholic means universal here. It does not mean Roman Catholic. Uh, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Here's what I'm going to suggest to us. First of all, our church affirms the Apostles' Creed. I mean, I don't see anything in here that is not biblical. It's a really good summary of the essentials of the Christian faith. Now, some of you may have grown up read, uh, either reading or reciting this. You might even have a little baggage appra- uh, attached to it because a nun hit you on the... On the uh, knuckles because you couldn't recite it or something like that listen can i encourage you to get over that baggage or to put that behind you this is a really helpful statement that the church has used for nearly 1900 years to guide it and if you can find people that affirm what's in this or at least start with the apostles creed that's a really helpful thing because this is a helpful summary of the teaching of the new testament so here's what i am going to ask if you're willing to I want to read this together. I've read it once. Man, if there's something in there that you have an issue with, you don't have to read it. I'm not going to make you do that. But I would like to talk to you about it because I don't see anything in it that's not in the New Testament. Um, So I want to read this together and then pray for us and then let you go. Would you mind standing with me? All right, we're going to read this together if you'd like. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Lord, we affirm your word in Ephesians 4 that you have given us steps to take to walk in uh, ways that preserve unity, and also you've showed us at least seven things that all Christians share one body, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Uh, We are grateful, Jesus, that you've revealed this to us. We want to walk in unity, Lord. We don't want to split over ridiculous little things. We also, Jesus, don't want to affirm things about you that are false. So teach us truth. We want to have the right thoughts about you, thoughts that come from you and come through your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.